Well, before we started, I do just want to express my thankfulness so much to God for allowing me to be here, and Jason specifically, to asking me to step outside of my, my comfort zone and do something a little bit different than what I usually get to do. Um, and I wanted to express my gratitude to my worship team that leads us so well each week and always does such a great job of leading us no matter what craziness I throw at them. And especially this morning that they led so well, first service and this second service, just moments after finding out what they did. And I'm very proud of them. And I was very proud to be in the congregation for once, to be with you guys on first service and second service, and both of you worshiped very well. And I was very proud that you guys did that. So I have some of my message this morning that uh, I feel, as I talked to Pastor Jason, that um, I'm going to go ahead and just deliver regardless. Some of it might be a little bit tough, but God knows what he's doing, and he had me prepare this for a reason. And so I'm not trying to get any emotion out of you or nothing like that, I promise. But I hope that we're listening and we hear what God has to say. If you are ever asked to speak as a worship leader, inevitably you get asked to speak on worship and with a topic as big and as vast as that, and so much of what the Bible has to say about it, you're just left thinking, well, where do we even begin? I don't know if you're like me, but if you ever sit on your couch and you just are scrolling through Netflix or Hulu or whatever mindless entertainment that we do, I, I do watch some TV. Um, but if you're ever just scrolling through the endless lists of shows and bad movies that you never seem to get around to, and then eventually you just end up watching the same episode of The Office you've seen 20 times... <laughs> A plethora of choices is not always a good thing. It's not always the most helpful thing. And with a topic as big as what worship is, with so much that there could be said about it, so many texts on it, I felt like I was looking up at a mountain and having, holding a toothpick and have no idea where to strike first. My mind went immediately to John 4, the woman at the well, and what Jesus says to her in their conversation about what worship is to worship in spirit and in truth. And I thought, great, that'll be our text. That's where we'll spend most of our time. What is spirit and truth worship? How do we do it? What it is? But then I thought, well, if we're talking about what, how to worship in the spirit, well, then we better as well talk about how to live in the spirit. So I jumped to Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If we belong to Christ, then we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. But then I thought about, well, I, I want to ex express some of my favorite Old Testament stories about what true and genuine worship looks like in a more ancient time. And then I thought, how could I be asked to preach on worship and not go to the book of Romans? And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You know it well. Romans 12, 1 and, just 1, actually. Sorry. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we come to you before you, God, ready to proclaim just how good and how awesome you are. There is no one like you. You are deserving of all praise, all spiritual worship, all adoration. I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would speak truth through me, that we would know you more, we would love you more, 
we would be challenged to live our lives as a holy sacrifice and spiritual worship to you. It is for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. So right here in this text, the Apostle Paul is trying to encourage us and to urge us into action and to right worship with God, to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Look down at verse 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, this sacrificial spiritual life of worship, or as Jesus puts it in John chapter 4, spirit and truth worship is authentic, genuine worship that involves an inward change of the heart, not just an outward observance. Not just in the way that we sing our worship songs, we play our music. Not just in the way that we wear our religion on our sleeves. The true worshipers of God worship in complete sincerity regardless of circumstance or trial or the storm that they're in. True worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God is done by those that are filled with the Spirit and who stand on the truth of God's Word. It means we must be in Christ Jesus to worship Him rightly. The Spirit of Christ must live inside of us for us to worship God because we cannot do it on our own. All of our sacrifices, our sacraments, our songs, our church services, if not filled with the Spirit, are filthy rags before Almighty, Holy, Holy God. But when we are in Christ Jesus and His Spirit lives inside of us, then we are able to truthfully and genuinely worship Him as the Spirit enables us. And those who are filled with the Spirit walk in the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says, not bound to the desires of the flesh, but set free in Christ. And if we have been set free in Christ, we are no longer conformed to this world, but we have been transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But how does this renewing of our minds take place? How does our love for God truly start to grow? By knowing him. By knowing more and more about the God we worship. By being in communion with him. By being in fellowship with him. Like it says in Ephesians 5. Be filled with the spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Yes, you should sing and praise and worship God in your private time with him in your car. But there's also a special call to the church to come together. As the ecclesia, the called out people of God. To worship him in one accord and one voice making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know him more when we are devoted to him in prayer more. And not just praying for the circumstantial and the needs. It's okay to pray for those things, but also praying in adoration the attributes of God. God, you are holy. God, you are good. There is none like you. And then praying to God for what brings him the most glory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done for your glory. But I think the primary way that our minds are renewed is in the active study of his written word. To know him, I have to know what he actually says. We need to daily, whether we feel like it or not, be active in God's word. 
I don't always feel like getting up and studying God's word. I don't always feel like giving God praise. I don't always feel like getting up here on this stage and leading you well. I don't. And sometimes when you do those things as a Christian and you do the right thing and you put your spiritual armor on and you do the right thing and you go to work in the word, sometimes you still don't feel anything. Our culture loves to think and to talk about how much we feel. And we love to feel like we're pumped up, ready to take on the world. I started leading people in the musical aspect anyway of worship when I was about 12 years old and All throughout my teen years, up into young adulthood, we would go to conferences and camps and big worship concerts, and we would lead people, and it was great, and we'd be all excited and pumped up. And the best one for us was always summer camp. And we would get there, and everybody would be so excited, and my friends and I, we would lead people well in worship for chapel and in the services in the evening. But our experience was typically this. On Monday and Tuesday, early in the week, the worship would just be a little bit more timid. And then the week would go by and we would play silly games and hear more about the word and have fellowship with one another. And then Friday night would come, the last night. And it would never fail. We would have a worship service that would go on for hours. And it seemed like people were truly, genuinely worshiping. It didn't seem like an act. People were singing out to God. It was written on their faces. Fired up for God, ready to take on the world for King Jesus. Amen. But then Saturday morning would come. And everyone would go home to their separate ways. And you'd be determined, this time, I'm going to make it last. I'm going to hold on to this feeling, whatever this is. But a few days would go by, or a couple weeks at best, and all of a sudden you'd be left feeling like nothing. I don't have that feeling anymore. And you'd be thinking, well, was any of it real? Do I believe any of that that happened? Because I don't truly feel anything anymore. How do we grow in the renewing of our minds? How do we grow in our love for God more? When you know him, when you mature as a Christian in Christ, in devoted prayer to him, in obedient praise to him, You don't need goosebumps or warm and fuzzy feelings to know that he is with you and he is faithful whether you feel him or not. Those feelings are nice. And I like to have those feelings. I like to feel like I'm on top of the mountain shouting praise to God. But he is with you in the valley too. As a matter of fact, the psalmist who wrote that, King David, knew a lot about walking through the valleys. One of my favorite pictures of worship in the Old Testament comes in the messed up aftermath of the story of David when he steals Bathsheba from Uriah. He has Uriah killed in battle. And the child that results from David's sin, God takes. And in the true story, the prophet Nathan confronts David. David repents. He prays to God, he calls out to God, he fasts, and God, in his righteous judgment, does not stay his hand. And the child dies. David's told this, and this is his response in 2 Samuel. So David arose from the ground, washed, 
anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. It's the story of Job who goes through the worst day imaginable. And his story, it's not seemingly for any of his own sin. Matter of fact, he's never even told why it happens. But he loses everything. His servants are slain. His property is taken. Animal fire, fire falls from heaven and burns up his animals. And then he is told that his children are at his oldest son's house. The house caves in and collapses and kills them all. He's told this, and this is his response in Job 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. As he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Talk about trusting in the sovereignty of God. Talk about true, passionate Spirit and truth, worship. Do you think Job and David felt like worshiping that way in that moment? Do you want to have faith like that? Do you want to be able to worship God on the mountaintop but in the valley as well? You need to get to know him more. Because the more you know him, the more you will love him, trust him, and know he is faithful no matter what. Ask yourself today. Challenge yourself. When you read the Bible, when you listen to faithful preaching, are you sitting up? Are you taking in the word or is it going in one ear out the other, trying to get through it? I do that sometimes. Are we sitting up and paying attention? Are we adequately feeding our souls by taking in more of the beauty and the majesty of God Almighty, actively taking in his word, listening to faithful preaching, being devoted in prayer. And when you do that, and you sit down at the banquet table, are you just scarfing down your food as nothing more than pure sustenance because you have to? Are you taking the time to taste and enjoy the meal that has lovingly been prepared for you? It is good and necessary to still be obedient and to do what you've been called to do, which is live in God's word, even when you don't feel like it. And God's word is good food indeed. But my prayer for you would be that it becomes more than just an obligation, something that you have to do or else, but that as you devour more of God's word, that you would taste his goodness, savor his grace, love his holiness, and be satisfied in the fullness of who he is. Romans 12.1 says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. But before we can even begin to understand the ramifications of what a life like that might look like, we have to understand how it's even possible that we could live that way. The answer has nothing to do with you or me. The answer is in this very verse. He says, I urge you, by the mercies of God. The only way you and I are ever able to fully worship God 
in holy sacrifice, pleasing and accepting to him, is by his mercy. You and I are utterly incapable of pleasing God on our own. Jesus says in Matthew 15, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. In other words, you could sing the most passionate, loudest worship song with the loudest voice. But if your heart isn't next to him, isn't honoring to him, isn't glorifying to him, all of our singing and passion is worthless. We can only worship him rightly by his mercy. What does Paul mean? What are these mercies that he is talking about? Well, if we look back at just the word right before he starts this, he says the word, therefore. Now, when Paul is preaching and he says, therefore, he's assuming that you and I read the verse that came before. Because the apostle Paul wrote the great book of Romans as a letter. This was a letter written to a specific group of people at a specific time that carries a consistent, coherent message that was meant for the reader to read from start to finish, from dear Rome to sincerely yours, and it divinely preaches a message that just happens to be called the gospel. If we can read more of it in its full context, we might understand what he means by the mercies of God. So we're looking back just one verse here with me. So from 12.1, jump back one verse to 1136. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now I do want to pause here for just a second because I want to share a little bit of a story of what happens just behind this door here with my worship team before we come out. Every week before Every service, we pray for everyone who walks through these doors. And when we do that, we are praying three things. As we pray that God be glorified, and among other things, but we always pray at least these three things. Number one, that anybody up here on this stage would be a good example as a leader of what true and genuine passionate worship looks like. I hope we do that most weeks. But number two, we pray that people... It wouldn't be about us, but people would be able to see through us, through our mistakes and our flaws, and see to the Father. But thirdly, we pray that the word of God and the gospel would be preached, and that eyes, ears, and hearts would be opened to it. Throughout the gospel, Jesus preaches, he calls out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Paul encourages Timothy by reminding him that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In praying that prayer, we are praying that the word of God and the gospel would be preached, that hearts of stone would be turned into hearts of flesh, that those dead in their trespasses would be made alive, that unbelievers would come to Christ, and that believers would be encouraged to pick up their cross and follow him, that sinners would be awakened and that saints would be edified. 
I stop here to tell you that because I don't want what we just read to pass any of us by. I want us to sit up and listen to what Paul is saying here so we can understand what these mercies are. So if you look with me one more time at 1136. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen, amen, and amen. We could stop right here. Or an entire sermon could be and should be preached on this one scripture. As I sat with this one, particularly this week, my mind was brought back to what Pastor Brian and Pastor Jason and even myself got to read in the couple weeks surrounding our Christmas services in John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And that brought me to one of my other favorite verses in Colossians. For by him, all things were created, whether in heaven or on the earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And we say hallelujah. But if we don't stop right here, and if we do still try and answer what Paul was meaning by the mercies of God, I think 1136 is a glorious crescendo outpouring of praise to God in what that question means. What the answer is to that is found elsewhere. Because if we look back further and remember that Paul is writing a letter and read more of its greater context, we might understand. I want to take a a side note here, I, I'm not trying to say that we should never just read one text and really spend all of our time looking at one verse. That's kind of what we're doing here today. We're reading 12, 1 and 2. What does it mean? How do we apply it to our lives daily? I'm not saying that you should never just zoom in, zoom in on a text in preaching. I'm saying like the apologist Greg Kokel says, never read a Bible verse. Don't read a single verse taken out of its context, trying to make it say what you want it to say, trying to make it mean what you want it to mean because it sounds better to you that way. It makes you feel better that way when it's said that way or because it looks better printed on my T-shirt or my coffee cup. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, might not mean what you think it means out of its context. Let's not even try and Figure out what he's meaning when he says talking about picking up snakes. Even the devil tries to tempt Jesus by twisting scripture out of context until Jesus has had enough and says, away with you, Satan. We should spend serious time contemplating what each verse says, trying to carefully draw out what the meaning of the text is. But we should stop trying to pour our own words into it to make it conform to whatever our preconceived notion is, but rather have the transformative word of God pour out on us and change us as we get to know him more. But in order to do that properly, we have to first understand what the fuller context is being said, to understand X, Y, and Z, you have to first read A, B, and C. So if you allow me just a, a little bit more grace, 
We're going to look back just a little bit further than 1136, okay, to try and find out what Paul is meaning by these mercies of God. <clears throat> I'm very grateful that I get to be your worship leader here. But I'm usually confined to just singing and leading you guys in four songs a week. I don't get to talk very much. I'm a very quiet kid. I'm the third brother, and I sit quietly at our table. My other brothers talk a lot more than I do. But if I'm given a mic and a word from God, and I'm supposed to preach, I might not get to do this again for a while, so I figure we might as well just go through the book of Romans here real quick. (laughs) Because the Apostle Paul has been telling us what the mercies of God are for 11 chapters to this point. So, this is going to be the biggest crash course you've ever had in Romans. There's way more to study. Please do. But put your helmets on. Put your seatbelts on. Because we're going to dive in and see what some of these mercies are that Paul is talking about. Romans 1 through 3 puts its focus mostly on the radical depravity of man. That our sin has separated us from God. God who is perfect and righteous and holy, holy, holy. There is no sin in God. There is no deceit in him. There is no flaw in him. He is altogether good and altogether perfect. Amen. And we as sinners, knowing this to be true, knowing that of course God exists and of course he is holy and deserves to be worshipped as such, knowing this and seeing the truth of God all around us, we've exchanged that truth for the lie. Because we loved our sin rather than God. We loved the creature rather than the creator. We've made ourselves into an idol to sit on the throne of our own hearts instead of the king of all the universe who made it to beat in the first place. And it is all of us. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But we, in our own arrogance, trying to hold on to some semblance of whatever goodness we think we have, say in our hearts, might be true. Everybody does sin. Everybody does make mistakes. But I'm, I'm still pretty good. The question you would have to ask yourself about that is, by whose standard? Yours or God's? We make too much of ourselves and our supposed goodness. And we make far too little of our sin. You see, when it comes to us, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. Not one. The book of Romans tells us that we are enemies of God, haters of God. You say in your heart, you stop right there, you say, okay, I can maybe get around the fact that I'm not that good, but please stop telling me that I'm that bad. I'm not that bad. Or you know what, don't even make it about me, but my brother, I know him. And he's walked away from the faith, but he's a nice guy. He's not that bad. Or my friend, or my coworker. He's told me he wants nothing to do with this Jesus stuff, but... He's a nice guy. He's not that bad. And you know what? In fact, no, he's a good person. The only true standard of goodness is God. And God's goodness is perfect and righteous. You and I and nobody else can ever measure up to that. The reality is the gap between that good person and holy God 
is a chasm so wide and so deep that no good person could ever have a hope of ever crossing it on their own. And the only one who could is the righteous son of God who stepped across that chasm to save rebel sinners like you and me. Not by anything that we've done. That's why when we come to Romans 4 and 5, we start to read about the amazing salvation that is found in the glorious cross of Christ. Amen. And we learn about the mercies of God, that we have been justified by faith and our sins have been forgiven through the atonement of Christ. Because God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And not because I deserve it, because I deserve Wrath. <clears throat> and yet, while I was a helpless sinner, an enemy to God, a rebel to the throne, Jesus took my sin. He took my unrighteousness. He marched it up Calvary and nailed it to the cross. He took my punishment. He took the full weight of the wrath of God meant for me. He drank it in. He poured out his blood, paid the price I couldn't pay, paid the debt I owed, reconciled me to God. He took my sin, all of it. He paid it all once for all and said, it is finished. Not because I'm good, but because he is supremely good. That is who we worship. So now what? Unfortunately, in the time we have left, I just, I can't fully delve into or even adequately summarize the entire book of Romans. Or even the first 11 chapters. We'd be here all year if we opened up Romans 9. Many years ago, I remember listening to Pastor John Piper up in Bethlehem. It was very big in my formative years listening to his sermon as they preached through the entire book of Romans. And I was curious to see how long it took them. So I looked it up and it was from 1998 until 2006, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And when I saw that, I was actually kind of surprised that it was only eight years. I thought for sure it would be at least 10. Got to be double digits. But as he opened up that series in the spring of 98, he opened up his first sermon when he said this. For almost 18 years now, I've been ministering the word. And again and again, I have waited, wondering when the time would be for preaching through the book of Romans. I've considered it over and over. I've walked up to the mountain and looked up into the clouds that surround the peak of this Everest and walked away to lower heights and contented myself with other things. Because it is absolutely daunting to stand before these 16 chapters that have been so unbelievably used by God in the history of the church and think that God would give me the grace and life to preach through this book. That indeed is the type of seriousness and devotion we need to take with studying and being active in God's word, living in his word. That's how we get to know him better. It's revealed in his word in communion with him. So 
So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you are an unbeliever today, if you don't know Christ, my plea to you is to come to him today. Do not wait. Today is the day of salvation. You are not guaranteed another breath on this earth. Repent from your sin, turn from your wickedness, and turn to Christ. You cannot do it on your own, but God is good and faithful. And he can save you, and he will save you. Call out to him. Come to Christ today. And if you're a believer, if you are in Christ, my charge to you today is to worship him as the supreme treasure who is worthy of all praise and adoration. And I pray that your passion and your affection for Jesus would grow as you get to know him more in his word, in worship, in prayer to him. Love him more, Christian. You know, as Christians, the more we know him, the more we do love him. And the more we love him, the more we will desire to obey him and submit to him. And to live our lives as a holy sacrifice in spiritual worship to him. But we are only able to ever do any of that by his mercy. Nothing to do with you or me, but by his mercy. For though it is told throughout Romans 1 through 3 that we are all sinners fallen way short of the glory of God. It is then told in Romans 4 and 5 that there is now salvation in Christ. We have been justified by faith because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which is then followed up with Romans 6 through 8. That there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but we have been sanctified, set apart. We have not been given a spirit of slavery but a spirit of adoption in which we can call out to God, Abba, Father. From there, the end of Romans 8 through Romans 11, we are told that all of this God will accomplish. For all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And there is nothing, no height, nor depth, nor anything that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. God has not rejected his people, but God will call people to himself. That whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that brings us all the way to the end of Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You bow your heads with me as we pray. So Father in heaven, we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. May you be glorified. May you be worshipped rightly in spirit and in truth. In every nation, tribe, and tongue, in every generation from now into eternity. Help us to live sacrificial lives in spiritual service of worship to you by your great mercies God and in the glorious name of Jesus we pray 
Amen.